0: Hello, Flight Instructors and NAFI members. This is John Niehaus, Director, Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors. And I'd like to welcome you again to the NAFI More Right Rider Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. Now, the intro today is just a little bit of a housekeeping or bulletin board issues and uh, things I wanted to point it out point out to you. If you're not already aware, um, as of, uh, gosh, maybe about a week and a half ago, we released our final five, and I use final in quotation marks, but our final five um, PDP courses, professional development program courses, and I am excited to announce that you can officially complete the NAFI professional development program. Now, that doesn't mean that we're done. It just means that you can finally complete it. There will be more courses. There's actually a whole slew of other things that we're going to do with the PDP. So uh, lots of exciting news coming. But uh, the most exciting thing that's happened in a long time is the PDP can be completed. So if you haven't done it, make sure you do. It's free to uh, all NAFI members or uh, included with your NAFI membership is probably a better way to say that. Um, and so we're real excited about it and I hope you are as well. Now, um, Bose, Bose Aviation specifically was very, very kind and a uh, long time ago, they donated five headsets, uh, for the first five members that finished the PDP and I'm excited to announce those. Now they are on the website. Um, but I want to do a big shout out to, uh, to these five members, Bill Lindman, Terry Hocking. Evan Tackaberry, Timothy Caves, and Andrew Doe. I uh, have talked to all of these individuals personally, but uh, um, just in case, I think I left a message for a couple of them in case you didn't know. Congratulations. So, and a huge thank you to Bose. Now, in addition to that, I wanted to just do a quick reminder that if you haven't participated in one of our special interest groups or SIGs, It's a really exciting program we started back in 2021, um, and it's kind of taking a life of its own. We have several of these things, and and think of it like a uh, networking event where you can talk to like-minded instructors, learn new ideas, learn new concepts, learn new ways of of instructing, um, and uh, have a little bit of fun along the way. Meet new people. Meet new friends. And so we've got uh, all kinds of different ones. We've got Rotocraft SIG, Glider, New Instructor, Instructors Who Teach Other Instructors. Um, we just started a Technology SIG or Tech SIG, um, and that's all about using uh, technology and gizmos and gadgets in the, uh, in the effort to make flight training better. Um, and uh, I'm real excited to announce that we have another SIG starting in February. And it'll be a seaplane zig. So i would like to welcome uh, um, those uh, instructors into the fold. And it'll be headed up by NAFI member Mike Pearson. So thank you for uh, for Mike and uh, getting all of that together for us. So um, really exciting stuff. And uh, I really hope that uh, that you're enjoying all of the, the different things that, that is providing. So um Without further ado, today's episode of More Right Rudder is a conversation I had with um, ATP and ATP's flight school, and more specifically, Todd Shallnut. Now, Todd is uh, an amazing instructor. He's a master instructor with uh, NAFI, and uh, he's their resident regulations guru. And so, um, it was a really great conversation with him to kind of understand, uh, what it is that, uh, that he tries to do with ATP, how he got his start as an instructor, what he thinks is important. And, uh, you know, one of the things that really stuck out to me was, was the idea that, uh, um, in his words, we sell experiences, we sell feelings, things that are non-tangible that go along with all of the traditional uh, ideas of flight instruction. And, and that's really true. It really is that, uh, something that, that you can't touch it, you can't quantify it, but it makes people feel good. And, and that's what gets, uh, people in the door and, and keeps them coming back. So anyways, um, I'm really happy to, uh, to share this with you. And, uh, once again, Todd, if you're listening, thanks for, uh, for doing it, and ATP, thank you for your continued support of Naffy and its members. They are a big sponsor of uh, of Naffy, and, and we appreciate them for all that they do. So, once again, Todd Shellnuts, and uh, enjoy. Today, my guest is Todd Shelnut. Now, Todd is the Flight Standards Manager for ATP Flight School. He is a CFI, MEI, and ATP. He earned his CFI initial in 2003, which is about 18 years of CFI experience. He earned the NATA Award for Excellence in Pilot Training in 2019. And he also earned the AOPA Flight Training Excellence Award for Best Flight Instructor in 2015. Todd, welcome. Thank you very much, John. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad you were able to make it, and without further ado, we'll just jump right into the very first question. Was flight instruction part of your original career plan, or was it something you never anticipated doing?
1: It was something that I had not anticipated doing, so the uh, the whole uh, flight instructor thing for me was a push uh, due to 9-11 events, and hmm. I had a a job that was lined up as soon as I graduated with my commercial. And I was not able to get into that position due to some of the restrictions and due to some of the downfalls of aviation during that time. So I ended up having to take up flight instructing.
0: And, you know, sometimes it's serendipitous because you're still here. So it must have been a pretty good, uh, pretty good choice.
1: I think it was. You know, it's probably one of the most overlooked. And uh, uh, I think probably, you know, one of the most uh, non really there's not a lot of people that look at flight and instruction, like, man, that's a pretty distinguished career. You know, you're a flight instructor. It's only the ones that's outside of flight instructing that's outside of aviation. You know, they hear you're an instructor and they're like, Oh, you're an instructor Well, your knowledge level must be well above everybody else's. They don't really understand. It's the f- guys that's fresh out of college fresh out of the school that actually do all most of the instruction in our in our industry so when i found out that as an adult learner when i got into aviation that there was a high demand for a well-versed patient flight instructor uh that was where i began to excel so uh uh which I think is a, a high virtue as being a patient flight instructor. So that's, that's where I started to excel, and I, I never got in a rush with things, and it paid off.
0: Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Reflecting on your instructor skill with your first student, how old do you think you did? Oh, it was absolutely terrible. It was, uh, uh,
1: yeah, I soloed her well before her time. I was an international student. She was from uh, England. And, uh, I, my, my fly school that I was working at, it was like a competition to see who could solo people the quickest, you know, when you could always have bragging rights with, well, I soloed my student in 11 hours Well, I soloed my student in 9.3, I did mine in 9.1. And so I guess there was a, a portion of that for me in which I was trying to push to be part of the group and be part of the clan. And, um, I pushed her way too hard and, um, I'm not sure. I never really followed her track afterwards, but I hopefully she finished. But I know I wasn't the best fit for her as a brand new instructor because I was just trying to go too fast and just trying to to get from one point to another. And I really didn't uh, I don't think I really cared back then about that um, aesthetic bond, Uh, had the cognitive and the psychomotor, but that aesthetic bond was not there and uh, that's what I think really kind of made my, my downfall at first as an instructor. But, yeah, it was a complete disaster. <laughs> but it went up going forward.
0: Now, um, as a, a side question, do you think that that is a common problem? Do you think that, uh, um, you know, in the industry, we do tend to solo students too early because of sort of personal motivations?
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the the problem hmm. I, 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 I use that word very liberally. I'm not saying it's a problem, but it, but it is for me, to me, in my eyes, it is a problem. Um, you know, there's just not a lot of checks and balances for flight instructors out there. There's not anybody that's kind of overseeing you when you're out in the field going, don't do that. That's not, Oh, don't do that. That's not good. We don't have, cause it's just me and the other person and we're in the airplane and you know, unless you have somebody riding backseat, that's got more experience than you and it's just very hard to find somebody like that so you just don't know what you just don't know Mm -hmm. and we all are trying to get to the same place but all of us are doing it just a little bit differently and because of that um, it makes a big impact on how a flight instructor is going to get from one point to another so if there's not a regimented cycle there of checks and balances. And if the flight instructor hasn't invested themselves into those check and balances, it could end up bad.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Most of us have had an instructor mentor who, uh, sort of helped us learn the ropes. Who was yours and what was the most meaningful thing they taught you?
1: So mine was actually my first examiner. Uh, he's now passed away, but his name was Jeff Helm. He was out of the, uh, Atlanta Fisdo area. And I was uh, trained out of Macon, Georgia, a little small flight school called uh, Southeastern School of Aeronautics, which is now defunct. Um, And Jeff's whole demeanor at that time was, of course, probably like a lot of majority of pilots out there in the industry, in which they would simply just treat everything as, hey, it's just, ah, don't worry about that. It's just, that's just the way it is. And of course, from a young Instructor and a young pilot, I'm like, oh man, that is so cool. Look at that. Look at that. Look how that airplane flies. Look at that cool airplane. He's like, oh, I got a thousand hours in that thing. Or, you know, just it was just routine. And so he would kind of bring me down to earth a lot of times, where he was like, you know, eventually, and and, and I, I didn't really know understand at first what he was trying to do, but he would use sayings like, you know, eventually the cool is going to wear off, and then where are you going to go from there? And I didn't really understand what he said at first. And after a a year or so, you know, I, I got to know him a little bit better. And I said, what do you mean when you keep saying this? And he says, Todd, if you can't find a way to make this job interesting and rewarding, then the coolness is eventually going to wear off. Mm. And he says, what are your plans on making this career of yours? What what are you going to do to make aviation cool? What are you going to do to make it rewarding how is it going to pay you back for all the time and money that you've invested in? And if you're just sitting there in the right-hand seat, logging hours or sitting in the left-hand seat, pushing buttons on autopilot, where's the reward in that? What's going to go on? And he said, it's not, sometimes it's not all about the money. And I'm going to tell you, that's a hundred percent true. It is not all about the money.
0: Yeah, no, in, in, uh, in everyone's career, I think that's a, an eventual lesson you do have to learn and, and, I I can understand that advice because if you don't learn that until 10, 15 years in when you're already life invested, (laughs) what do you have left? That's right.
1: And it'd be very difficult for you to go back and try to correct a lot of those errors if you wait to 15 years because the law of primacy not only works for students, but it also works for uh, the people who are actually teaching. So if you get something set in your ways, it's very difficult for you to change that because that may be the only thing you've ever known or the only way you've ever known.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's the most uh, valuable non-aviation skill you've learned from your time as a flight instructor?
1: The most valuable non-aviation skill. Oh, wow! Well, you know, it, it, that's kind of a loaded question to me, John. And the reason why I say that is because I use probably every one of my life skills in aviation. But, you know, one of the things that they don't really teach you and train you a lot on in CFI in CFI training and piloting is that that relationship with your student. I mean, they have a little bit of information in the FOI book, but there's a little piece of information it's right in the front of a little paragraph it's right in front of the uh, the uh, aviation instructor's handbook and it says this and I'll, I'll paraphrase I don't want to say exact but it says the information in this book is only meant to give you a very rough over once a once over and you should probably seek out other device uh, uh, other uh, things to help you out so it really wasn't until I could do an aviation bachelor's degree and then I did a a business master's degree and it wasn't really until I started getting into some psychology courses outside of that on a business standpoint that I actually really kind of understood what it meant to be a flight instructor and that's just having those good psychology and people skills and we just don't get taught a lot of that we get taught how to do a Shondell which is don't get me started on that. Um, there's a lot of things that we get taught and that we have to do in aviation. And it's just, it, it doesn't really have a true meaning for how, what the person is going to go to eventually. So non-aviation skill, aviation skill, not instructor skill, but it's going to have to be the, the study of psychology and how to work more closely with people because in aviation in general, and again, not dealing with the flight instructor world, but in aviation in general, if, you've, if you're very well-versed in psychology, you can pretty much solve all problems and, and look at all problems. It's ADM and risk management. And all that stuff comes from your ability to be able to gauge and, and work problems out. And we just don't spend a lot of time studying that as private and instrument and commercial. And so if the flight instructor is not well-versed in that and how to relate that meaning really doesn't go well, but it just doesn't go into enough detail in the books that we currently have in our industry to to make it truly worthwhile for the instructor.
0: Yeah, you know, I can totally see that because being able to read people, being able to understand if your student is, you know, tired, frightened, angry, uh, stressed out, all of those things can affect their ability to not just absorb the information that you're trying to tell them, Um, but their ability to perform whatever tasks you're asking them to do. And even more importantly than that, sometimes it might affect their ability to do it safely. Uh, so being able to analyze those things before they go solo or take a check ride is, is a huge thing. Yep. So what do you enjoy most about flight instruction? Um, well. I, uh, am
1: very big on ensuring that I'm doing the best job I can. So I try to ensure that when I'm working with someone that I try to let them know that they're doing a good job. And I try to also let them know if they're doing a, a bad job, but it's all in the way we present it and all the way we say it. Cause if you say it the wrong way, even sometimes good things can come out badly. So for me, I'd like to be able to, um, uh, have that understanding from my student to say, you know, I need constant feedback. If you don't tell me what I'm doing wrong, if you don't tell me what you're not getting, if you don't tell me what you're not understanding, I can't progress. And I'm not trying to just progress just with you. I'm trying to progress in the industry to know more and be smarter and work with people. No two students learn alike. No two students have the same emotional set. So me trying to work with the students and get a feedback, from them is very rewarding for me and Mm -hmm. that goes in the case of you know when when someone solos and they put the social media uh post out there they're like thank you to my instructor todd shelman which has been a while since i soloed anyone i'm I'm more or less in the flight instructor game and but when i see that through the social media as well thank you very much for todd helping me out with my flight instructor training i sure do appreciate it that's For me, that really does make everything worthwhile because if you're not, if you don't feel appreciated, um, it's just a hard, it's it's not going to be giving. The aviation is, man, you know, as well as I know, this is not a very forgiving industry. If Mm. you make a mistake, if you, I mean, you could lose everything at the drop of a hat. I mean, this is the epitome of integrity in our community. So you have to be that consummate professional and you have to just be looking at every single thing you can possibly do to improve. And, but how do you know that you're improving if you don't get that feedback? So for me, it's 100%. Uh, the reason why I do what I do is to keep growing professionally. And I can't do that until I actually get that five-star rating from every single student. You know, And I work with a student. I give them a Google form that I created. I'm not trying to plug Google forms here by any means. But it's just like, how did I do? Where would you expect me to do differently? Did I keep you informed? Uh, you know, did I, did I arrive early? Uh, you know, did I know what type of soda that you like to drink so I can treat you to a soda? Uh, you know, just just getting to know the client. And then in the end, that reward for me is them soloing safely, them passing the check right on the first go successfully. And then also sharing the good news and praising I like to be praised. Don't students like to be praised? I'm they, they do like to be praised. We talk about that in the voice. But man, nobody wants to talk about the instructor being praised. There should be a handbook for the students that tell them how to praise their instructor. And that's what I go for is I, I, I thrive off that praise or somebody just saying, hey, you did a good job.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I really like one of the things that you just said or one of the words that you just said. So often we focus on the fact that flight training is between a instructor and a student or learner, if you want to call it that now. Um, but you use the word client. I, I think so often we forget that they're customers, they're clients, and, and it's part of our job to make sure that our customer service and the customer experience um, is a notch above the rest. I mean, that's what also makes a, a successful and unique instructor, right?
1: Well, I, I, I'm going to tell you, John, uh, pretty much anyone who's, who's ever came through aviation, uh, <laughs> they spent a lot of money. And uh, for, at some flight schools, man, you know, they, they pay upwards to $100,000, you know, to go zero to hero. Uh, for me, that's beyond student. That's client. You know, that's, hey, I, I have a responsibility to you. I'm not just out here. Um, as you're my student, I have a responsibility to you. And and for me, when I use the word student, it just doesn't it just doesn't echo enough responsibility. And um, so, if I have a responsibility to my client, it just seems like a lot for me. It just sounds better. Say that to a student. There's not a lot of students that if you say you're my client, that they'll go. I would prefer that you don't call me that. <laughs> right. They like to hear that and they like to know, Hey, you know what? I'm being taken care of. I'm his client. I'm working with him. You're paying Isn't that. Normally how we worked, you know, if you pay anybody else in the industry. Don't they call you a client? You're paying me to do a job. Let me take care of you. And so you're my client.
0: Yeah. I think it's a really interesting point. Cause when you, when you equate it to other service industries, uh, renting a private jet. Okay. So that might cost you $10,000 to go from point A to point B, uh, hiring a limo and going, uh, for a wedding that might cost you a few hundred bucks and you get the all-star treatment when that happens, when you're getting your private pilot license, it's going to cost you $10,000 and a instructor doesn't treat you like your, uh, important client. It goes to serve the wrong message. I agree. The other thing that I wanted to bring up, because you and I have known each other for, for a while, and um, something you told me at one point about things that you enjoy and makes you sort of a, a unique instructor is how much you love the regs. Talk to me about that.
1: Man, uh, you're getting me. You're getting me all giggity right now. <laughs> uh, it's uh, I don't care. I don't really care how much of a dork people think I am for the saying that I embrace the regs, but if you really think about it, almost every single time the FAs had to talk about talk to someone about something, <laughs> it's got to do with the regs. Uh, they You don't violate based off just human nature and faith. They're going to violate you based off regulatory guidance. And why not know your trade? God, I, I keep echoing those three words every single time I try to tell somebody something and I'm trying to reinvent reinforce the decision to know this. And I'm like, man, how much money did you spend to be in this zero to hero program? Or how much money have you spent to do your private instrument? Know your trade, know what's going on. Every, you should know every aspect about it. You should know everything about this plane. You should know everything about weather. You should know everything about airspace and you should know everything you could possibly know about regs. Because like I said, no matter, no matter what you look at, If someone has ever got in trouble with the FAA, it's because they violated something in the CFRs. And so I don't want to get violated. I don't want to get a a LOI from the local FISDO. I want to try to do the best I possibly can. So whenever someone doesn't understand anything and I try to say, well, it's in the regs and they pick it up. And it's like this big, huge, thick book Mm -hmm. and it's intimidating And I'm like, well, you do realize that that whole entire book is not regs. It's only half that thick book that you have in your hand. And if you split that in half, that's half regs and half aim. And then if you just go in there and pull out part 61, you're only talking about 80 pages. You know, one of the things that people ask me, they're like, how do you know this stuff so well? And I'm like, you know, that it really hasn't changed since the day I walked in the door of aviation i mean it has but we're only talking about just a couple of sentences and maybe some additions um they added recreational pilots. that's only six regs five or six numbers i mean it's not that complicated and mm-hmm. if you let's take one example if you look at part uh, 61.107 it's a very long reg. That's everything you got to know to be a private pilot in the airplane. And of course, a little bit on the ground, but only one paragraph that applies to you. Because that's only, air. it's only airplane. So 61107 is a couple pages long, but only one paragraph because you're not flying helicopters or gliders or rotorcraft or lighter than air. So only one paragraph. So I actually went in and doctored it and downloaded the whole entire thing in a PDF format and chopped everything out. And it doesn't apply to me as an airplane pilot. 19 pages huh and that's really interesting we're talking about anybody do that we're talking about front and back on a piece of paper just 19 pieces of paper and that's from 61.1 all the way to the end of the cfi regs. so i didn't do atp or or ground instructor or sport but 19 pages and that's if you cut everything out that doesn't apply to airplanes huh 19 pages we're not talking about a lot of stuff. So if if you go in and actually start looking at it and trying to become more familiar with it, you realize that it's really not a lot and it never changes. Well, I can't say that. It rarely changes. And when it does, it only tweaks it slightly. It's not that big of a deal. But I love the regs. I embrace the regs simply because when you are in a conversation with someone and you hear them talking and you're like, Hey, well, just to let you know, the regs say this. And they'll go, wow, that's, I did not know that. And you get them excited about knowing it and you get others excited about knowing it. And they're like, man, I really probably would have made a big mistake if I would not have understood that. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's why you got to know the, you got to know the laws to drive a car on the road and you got to know, the laws to operate an aircraft and if you want to as a flight instructor you have to know the certification of airmen and instructors which is part 61 but you've also got to know part 91 which is everything you can't do or the way mm-hmm. i like to say it part 61 is all the way you can get your pilot certificate and part 91 is all the way the fa can take it away from you so um, for me the regs is just like a, a, a everyday form of life and i i love being uh getting vent uh, getting phone calls and emails for someone saying, Hey, you know, can you interpret this or how do you interpret this? Or what do you think about that? I I do like being that go-to person uh, because for me, uh, it's kind of like Mozart for me. Uh, Regs just come natural for Mm me. So um, just like uh, it would for any of those artists, I think I'm an artist when it comes to interpreting those. And I, I, that's just one of those things I geek out on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's your most interesting, scary, or fun story you've had as an instructor?
1: Interesting or fun story? Well, I have fun stories and I have interesting stories. Um, I think a lot of the times I try to pe- tell people uh, the problems that I've actually experienced as a pilot. You know, We hear about the truth uh, the and good things all the time, and we talk about safety and risk management and aeronautical decision-making. But a lot of times, I think a lot of pilots look at those aspects and they're just saying to themselves, yeah, I'll handle that when it happens, or why should I study that? It's all the same thing. And you got your three Ps and your five Ps and your decide, and they really don't understand what it truly means to embrace those things and make those good decisions prior. And so every single thing that's ever happened to me, which is a kind of a negative thing in my flying career it's always been because I didn't understand something fully or I didn't measure the risk correctly. And probably one of the most outstanding examples is when I first truly learned and understood multi-engine aerodynamics, I was a multi-engine flight instructor and I was working at my flight school and I went out flying with my flight instructor and we were out in a um, Piper Aztec and we were having a little competition and the competition was, Hey, let's see who can hold, the tightest tolerances on slow flight. And I was like, all right, come on, we'll do this. We'll have a little competition together. And I would do it, and then she would do it, and I would do it, and she would do it. And I was beating her just a little bit, like a knot or two, you know. And we're slow flight and got the gear down, got the flaps in. We're in this Piper Aztec. And um, at the very crest of the slow flight, with the back back in the days where we flew around with a stall warning horn blaring, remember those days? Uh, I do. Uh, at minimum controllable airspeed, so mm-hmm. at minimum controllable airspeed, and and I looked over and I said, Ah, once the student, now the teacher. And man, she reached up there and she grabbed uh, one of those mixtures and she uh, left mixture and she pulled it down. And uh, the airplane went right into a VMC roll. Now, whether that was a smart maneuver or not on her part, let's just kind of focus on me for right now. So the first thing that I did was, um, because I wasn't an experienced pilot and I'd always been trained to the maneuver and not to real life. When the airplane started to roll, I rolled the ailerons back in the opposite direction and I pulled far aft on the yoke as I could get it because I'm going down and I'm going to the left. So I'm going to, do the opposite. So I won't continue to do these things. And then I soon realized as the airplane was upside down, that that wasn't the most appropriate decision to make. Hmm. And then as we're upside down, she goes, move, slaps my hands off the flight controls. And she adds the power back in and she rolls the airplane out just right on the heading we were on before we started. And she goes, don't ever say that to me until you have more experience. And that really kind of set the motion for me set in motion for me with, with know your trade, because I could sit down and grip ground school. I could tell you everything you want to know about multi-engineered dynamics, but I didn't understand it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't understand it because there wasn't that, that uh, need for me to get out there and put myself in a situation in which I absolutely like to get out of that. I had to have understood how this stuff actually works. And I'm Practical like, man, what else? yeah, what else do I not know? And so I had to play it by ear and I'm like, wow, you know what? Um, I probably need to understand stalls. I probably need to understand spins because I think I was like most instructors when they first start off, you know, when you get to do stalls, I say most instructors, there's probably some listening to this, like I didn't have a problem. I did spins on day one on my discovery flight and I loved it. I didn't, I hated it. (laughs) I hated being in that unusual attitude hated being in the stalls and I shorted my customers for years, you know, when it comes to stalls, because I was terrified of the airplane. I say years, it was probably two years, you know, and we do power on stalls. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's good enough. They probably won't even ask you to do that on the check ride. You're good. You know, because I was so petrified that something would happen. I didn't understand it. I went out to PDK in Atlanta and went around did some upset training there for a few days and, It broke me of that because I finally understood what was going on, but it was beyond the book. So I was only had the cognitive. I really didn't have the psychomotor version of my, what I should
0: know. So beyond the book, that's a, that's a really good way to put it. Mm. So in your mind, what makes for an exceptional flight instructor? You know,
1: I'm, I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers here, and, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. You know, we, if you look at this, the industry that we're in, it's, it's really just uh, if you think about it and you really sit down and you look at what we're doing in the flight training industry. Uh, this is very controversial what I'm about to say, but it's my point of view and you don't have to agree with it. But we're teaching students everything they shouldn't do in a plane. Hmm. we're telling them, we're not only teaching and telling them when we're assessing and grading on them to actually go out there and do something that hopefully they would never go out and do in a plane. Lady, let's, let's purposely put this airplane in an accelerated stall. Let's purposely spin this plane. Let's purposely go slow flight. I don't know how well it would go uh, over with a, an airlines pilot, if they um, have one of the airline pilots come in and he just like, yeah, well, you no, know, I had all these pastors on board. And I just thought I'd practice slow flight out here with the stall warning horn blaring off. We teach people to do things that they're not supposed to do in a plane and they get graded on it. It's actually quite absurd when you think about it. Um, we should be teaching them all the things that they should do and the practicalities of things. So I like to get down to that particular point in which I'm saying, first off, this is, this is what this maneuver is designed to show you. And here's what would happen if we didn't know how to do this. And so, but we have to do this because the, the FAA wants to see these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but just to understand, I don't want you going around doing this, but you have to do it to get certified. And if you look at all the things we have to do to get certified, and you think about it, and you look at the practical application of it. It's not probably the best thing to ask someone to do because we don't do it. We don't do it in any other form of of transportation. We don't actually say, "Hey, let's let's take this all the way to the limit. Let's take it all the way to the edge of the envelope and fly it all the way there to the edge of the envelope." But if you go past that edge of the envelope, you failed. Notice the disapproval didn't pass the eval. It's, it's really kind of absurd if you think about it. So for me, if I don't get right on top of that and say, now, this is not something you're going to go out there and do every day, but I've got to show you this thing called a power on stall. Let me start by telling it sound exactly why we do this. And I've got to be able to show you how to put yourself in this predicament and then get yourself out of this predicament. Hmm. You kind of think about the student sitting there going, so this is dangerous? Yes. Um, I shouldn't do this in real life. No. And so why are you, why are you forcing me to actually do this and then forcing me to, to do the, op, you know, to, to do the recovery? Um, good question. I don't know that, but we got to do it because the FA wants to see it. Well, that's not correct. There's a meaning behind it. If you don't know the meaning, you, you're not going to do it. So I like to focus on the meaning behind everything and say, look, this is the reason why you have to do this. And if you don't understand it, they're, your motivation is going to go way, way down. And I can't just train you to a check ride. I've got to train you for success and for safety and how to live and feel confident in your pilot technique and not just out there saying, hey, what is the examiner going to ask me on the check ride? What is the examiner going to do with me on the check ride? You got a gouge on this person. No, I don't have a gouge. And you're not going to use a gouge. I'm going to train you how to be a safe pilot. And that's the end of the story.
0: That's a great answer. That's a great answer. I know a guy. Um, who uh, equates what you just said to, I'm going to take this person up to a cliff and they're going to see how close they can get to the cliff. And then right as the rocks start tumbling off the edge and their feet starts to slip, I'm going to grab them and yank them back. And uh, it's, it's just, it's up until recently, I had never heard it equated that way. And, and it's a, a very interesting discussion.
1: Yeah. I, during multi-engine instruction exactly, especially I'll, I'll, I'll say how absurd is it to actually do this VMC demo um, where we have to bring the airplane right up to this particular point where we're, it's just, it's it's not safe to fly it up to that particular point. So you, and I've told the story several times where I'm like, so if you go up to this cliff, which is red line and you look down and there's like, glass yards and stalactites and dinosaurs and alcohol (laughs) alcohol like it's gonna really hurt if you fall down in there but i want you to stay right here at the edge watch your step don't go any further easy If, if you go over it's going to be bad so then we we step up so that's red line so we're going to back up about 10 feet where blue line is and i'm going to tell my student go hey you see that red line up there yeah don't ever go up there to that red line Stay at blue line. If you go up there, you don't even want to know what's beyond that. It's bad. Trust me. You don't want to be up there. Stay at blue line, 10 feet back. You're good to go. And and then you go into the reason why they should learn it. And then you tell them a story about why it's important. I was out flying with a multi-engine guy for a flight review, right? Guy's in a baron. We do a single engine approach into Pine Mountain, Georgia, We start to, or excuse me, LaGrange, Georgia. We start to do the single engine mist approach. Okay, a lot of people don't feel comfortable in doing this. I'm like, all right, let's very safe altitude. We're at 200 feet. Let's go ahead and execute the mist. And the guy doesn't pull his gear up. He doesn't pull his flaps up. He adds power on the good engine. He starts to climb out. Airspeed's going lower and lower and lower. And as he starts to get down below blue line, really poor rudder control. I see that nose dancing to the left. And I said, watch it, watch it. I call for the controls. I suck the gear up, pull the flaps up, climbing out now at blue line. And he goes, my God, I can't, be- what was that that just happened? And I said, yeah, that was, you coming very close to a loss of control. And he goes, why did that happen? And I said, Remember when you did your multi-engine training, do you remember doing this stuff, a VMC demo and a BYSE drag to know? He says, I've never done either. And I don't remember doing that on my check ride. Of course, I facepalm and I'm like, ah, you and I've got to spend some time together. But here's the rub. If that was a true engine loss and he had to go around and I wouldn't have been in the airplane, he'd be dead. So, you know, I have these go-to stories where I'm out there training and I see these things and I'm like, where, where did you learn this? Please let me help. Because mm-hmm. if I wasn't here, you would not be here today or you'd be in bad shape.
0: Yeah. Well, and it and it goes back to what you said earlier. I mean, that person probably had extensive training on VMC. Obviously they had to do it on their check, right? Whether they remember it or not, but it goes back to that practical application of why were they doing it? They understand, understood the, the, maneuver in the time but they didn't know what the real life reason for it was and therefore you know a single engine go around they weren't going to know
1: right and and if you if they can't see it uh pilots don't want to be students they simply just want to fly because it's the best thing since sliced bread Mm -hmm. and it's so cool And you get up there and they're looking at all the broccoli and they're counting pools. And they're like, Oh man, this is so incredibly awesome. You know, that's why we don't, we don't sell flight training, John. We don't sell flight training. We don't sell discovery flights. We're selling passion and love and feelings. That's what we sell to our clients. Not this other stuff. If you told them they had to go out and do stalls on day one, they probably wouldn't sign up for flight training. But in order to capture that passion and, and say, look, I really want you to achieve what you want to. I want you to get up in that air, but we got to do all this stuff first. That's, you have to center around that as an instructor.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what aspect of flight instruction best prepared you for your current role? What you do now?
1: Hmm. Well, um, it was owning my own flight school. That was probably the, the biggest highlight uh, to kind of get me to where I am now. Uh, the reason being, and of course, there's books out there that explain what I'm about to tell you, but uh, you know, we, we start off as flight instructors and we're referred to as like uh, we could be referred to in business as the technician. So we're just out there, we're doing the technician work. And um, we're really not familiar what it takes to be a manager or what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And so one day we get this brain. this this thing in our brain, and we're like, hey, man, I'm out here every day, and I'm flying this little 152, and I'm making money for the man, why is the man getting all the money, I want some of this money, I want to do well, and so we think to ourselves, well, you know, you're at Applebee's, and you're writing on a cocktail napkin, you're like, if I buy this 152 for this amount, and gas costs this, and uh, man, I really think I could make some money as an independent flight instructor, and then you get out there in the field, and then you realize, Oh my God, what have I got myself into about two months in there after you're a little bit in debt. And you're like, I didn't think about insurance. And I didn't think about tie downs and I didn't think about adding oil. And I didn't think about what the fuel would cause and the fluctuation of prices. And wow, this is, there's not a lot of meat on the bone after you've cut out all the, what everybody else gets their hands into my income, little fingers into my income. So You know, looking at that particular aspect, when I had to jump directly from the technician to the entrepreneur Mm -hmm. and I skipped over management, my business did not flourish for the first two years because I was so busy learning how aviation works. So if you don't understand how aviation works, you really can't get to where you need to be holistically, especially if you're trying to get, uh, in an administrative role like I am, which I still do fly, um, each month, but, you know, as far as an administrative role, you've got to understand the business side of things and, and how to manage things. Uh, so you can't skip around, you know, if you're going to be a technician, fine, you learn to trade, but you just can't take a pilot and put them in a managerial role. They don't understand. And you really can't take a pilot and put them in an entrepreneurial role because if you skip around like that, they don't have the ability to go back and manage, especially if you're a one-man operation or a one-woman operation. Mm-hmm. So having those management skills of owning my own school, that really gave me the appreciation of what it takes to get out there and say, we're going to have a standardized procedure for breaking because I'm sick and tired of paying $700 for a break job. <laughs> You know, and you guys are going to do this standardized and you try to be nice about it. And uh, so it really gives you an an upper hand, especially on the standardization side of the realm, which I embrace holistically every day uh, to get out there and say, wow, how can we do this better? How can we be more standardized? How can we get pilots on board with doing this? And if you don't know how to manage people, it's not going to work out well.
0: Sure. And and as a addition to that question, the next question sort of uh, adds to it. How did you take all of that and then utilize it to transition into your role at ATP?
1: Well, there was a lot of things now that went into this. And, um, as a flight standards manager for ATP, we're looking at a nationwide level. We're looking at 70 different locations. We're looking at over 500 instructors. Uh, there's a lot of different spokes to this wheel, um, And it took a little bit from every aspect of it. So as a flight school owner, I understood the aspects of maintenance. I understood the aspects of overhead, um, even down to the smallest thing. You know, I don't want to take too many notepads from the storeroom because somebody has to buy those. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I tell the students how to take care of the plane because I don't want to have to buy parts prematurely than what we have planned And so on and so on. I want to teach them how to lean properly. I want to teach them how to do all these things properly. And then there was experience I had with being a pilot examiner. That helped me work closer with the flight checks department at ATP. And then there was the things from the safety department and my military background and just tons of things that's happened to me out into the field uh, while working in the field in which I got myself into. And I'm like, well, that's not good. I should have really thought about that wonder how I can better prepare myself in the future. So being well-rounded um, really helped to, to uh, set me up for success working with ATP because I've, I've worked in a lot of different departments. And for me, that's the key to success. If you try to stay in one particular realm over a period of time, you're only going to be needed in that one realm so what you have to do is go to the other departments and go hey how can I help or hey can you show me how to do that or hey how does that work and so the more well-rounded you are the more places that a company will be able to place you if they don't need you where they are where you are so yeah being
0: well-rounded yeah yeah that's great advice so final question if you could give a new instructor a piece of advice for success in the profession what would it be
1: Be patient says the worst thing that you could deal with in this industry is, or probably one of the hardest things to overcome is the concept of time. And, you know, when I say this to people, I, I'm really trying to make sure that they understand what I'm saying. So the little story I like to project to them is this. And I go, do you remember the day you first soloed? And they're like, yeah, remember the day you did your discovery flight? Yeah. I remember that day. How cool was that? Cool. I said, do you ever think you'd solo an airplane when you did your discovery flight? And they're like, "No, oh, man, it was so cool. It's like, so you got the day you soloed and you're like, man, it's going to be so cool when I'm a private pilot. And you remember that day you got your private pilot. Yeah, man, that was so cool. Hey, yeah. You made all this, you know, you told all your family and you're so cool and you got your shirt and you check ride pictures. And that was so cool. I said, got your instrument rating wasn't that cool? You never thought you'd be there because, you know, you just like yesterday, you were just in discovery flight. So you never thought you'd be there. But here you are and all those late nights of studying and looking over all the charts and the symbology and all the pr- rules and procedures and regs. And God, how did I ever memorize that? But you did and you passed it and then you got into commercial and you went through that. And what a great time that was out there flying and building hours and learning all this stuff and new maneuvers and maybe even flying a complex airplane or a TAA. And it's just so cool. And you thought, man, I never thought I'd be a commercial pilot, but here's that day, and here's that social media post: "Hey, I'm now a commercially rated pilot." And then all your idiot family members that don't know about aviation, they're like, "Really? What airline do you fly for?" Um, you know, because they just don't know what they don't know. And so you you make it all the way through, and you get to the end of it and you check, CFI check ride, double I check ride, MEI check ride, and you get through the whole program. You're like. Phew. I'm here. But if I if you if I have to make you look back 9 months, a year, 2 years and I'm like, remember when you did your discovery flight? Remember that? Remember how you thought this day would never happen? Well, here it is. Don't let the concept of time limit you for what you can do. Know your trade, make every day count, have a study regiment. You will get there, but wake up every day, set an agenda, do what's on the agenda, and then wake up tomorrow morning and do the same thing again. Just treat every day as a goal and just get through the day and you'll be fine. Everyone has the this aura hanging over them when they're going through aviation about, will I be successful? Am I going to be scared about this? This is, you know, will I how long will it take me? How long should I start earning money? How much do I pay back my student loans? I mean, there's so much worries, all this emotional baggage we have over our head, but it's every day. Treat every day as just trying to get through the day, have a set thing at the beginning of the day. I'm going to get through that. I'm going to read this many pages today. I'm going to do this practice test today. I'm going to do this sim today, this flight today, and just get through each day. Time is the worst enemy. Just learn how to deal with time
0: yeah and and i'll add one uh, one additional thought to that and i don't remember who told me this but they they really stuck with me and that was manage the moving goalpost. so you know to your point of taking each day by day and and making sure you celebrate the wins that you have because once you once you make it to each goalpost, you're always as pilots we're always going okay i passed my private pilot check ride Onto my instrument instrument pilot check ride. Onto my commercial pilot check ride. Yeah. And it happens the next day for a lot of us. And we don't take the time to say, I just spent the last year or six months or whatever working on this thing and I completed it. And yay me, this is great. It's yeah. always, this is great, onto the next. Yep. And if we always live our life like that, um, which personally, I have. And I, <laughs> I wish I had gotten this advice earlier, but if we always live our life life like that, we can never really truly understand all of the the monumental things we've accomplished. Right. So Todd, any final thoughts, anything else you'd like to talk about? No, I'll tell you what I'd like
1: to do with you one day. Um, you do such a hard job. You do such a, you do such a great job with Naffy. Um, I think I need to come back on here maybe in the next few months. And I want to interview John Niehaus and do 10 questions with you. Cause I think people need to know more about you and the job you do and the background that you've done. Because man, you just really go out there and you get the job done and you put this, you put uh, NAFI on a platform where it should be uh, because there's not a lot of professional development stuff out there for pilots or for flight instructors, even a more narrow margin. So I appreciate all that you do. Um, I think we've covered enough for today and everybody's heard about Todd enough. So I appreciate everything you do and what NAFI does.
0: Well, thank you so much. And, and it's our goal to uh, to be able to do things like this, to highlight our members and highlight the instructors out there that are, are really kind of uh, making us all, all shine. So thanks for taking the time. And um, one last question, and that's uh, if somebody wanted more information about ATP and, and uh, wanted to possibly either work or become a student at ATP, what would they do?
1: Yep, yeah, absolutely. So, as with everything else in our world nowadays, there's a website for you, www.atpflightschool.com. And uh, you can just scroll down to whatever section you want to look at. They're all different types of programs and, and, uh, how, you know, where do you want to go and what do you want to do? Um, and if you want a career with, with us, you just scroll down at the very bottom and there's a thing that says careers. You can click on that and maybe ATP is going to be the right fit for you.
0: And I hope you, uh, if you are interested, I hope you do that. And just know that uh, ATP as an organization has been a longtime friend of NAFI, and uh, we appreciate all the support that ATP provides us and our members. And we appreciate you as well, John.